0: This is Danielle, and this is Sarah, and this is the Urban to Country Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Urban to Country Podcast, where we talk to outdoor enthusiasts about life, hunting, and how to make everyday epic. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Urban to Country podcast. I am here with not one, but two guests today, which is very exciting. I get to break out the extra headset. I am here with my friends Sarah and Danielle. And why don't you two introduce yourselves and tell people what it is that you do? I think that'll kind of lay the groundwork for our conversation today.
0: All right, so this is Danielle. I am the education coordinator for the Montana Bear Education Working Group. Uh, our group is a collaborative um, partnership between Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, the Forest Service, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and a couple
2: of wildlife-focused non-governmental organizations. And I have Sarah next to me here. And I'm Sarah, and I also work with Danielle in coordination with the Montana Bear Education Working Group. My focal area is kind of on the Helena, Lewis, and Clark National Forest, uh, but I also partner with Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and I work a lot out of the eastern front area, central Montana, and down into the Butte area doing bear education, bear awareness, and conflict prevention.
1: Very cool. So whichever one of you wants to field this question, my first question is, who would win in a fight, a grizzly bear or a gorilla?
2: Um, I would have to say a grizzly bear. (laughs) 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 They have very... uh, I, I think gorillas have pretty sharp canids but and are fairly strong but they don't have the claws or the quite as thick a of fur and hide as a bear. Yeah, I'm going grizzly bear. Going grizzly bear. Yeah. Grizzly bears know how to
0: to hunt hunt more. I think the gorilla is strong but they're a little more on
2: the yeah. plant eaters, <laughs> so well, and if it's, it's winter is the, miz- the male grizzly or um male gorillas that are the strongest, so they and their yeah. only purpose is to fend their harem or group, so they aren't really in the hunting predatorial side,
1: yeah. well and if the (laughs) if the gorilla comes to montana i mean the weather's just gonna be off it's gonna be off its game i mean let's be honest bear's gonna win we
2: don't have very big trees (laughs) they tend to fall over a lot (laughs) (laughs) and that's a wrap end of podcast
1: (laughs) Uh, no i i wanted to sit down with you too because there's been a lot of news around the the grizzly bear and just bears in general in montana and I actually think it'd be really good for one of you to cover what we were talking about just before we started. Um, Fill people in on where we're at with grizzly bears right now, delisting, kind of the the status update of grizzly bear management in Montana, in the Montana area, the GYE. Who wants to tackle that?
2: Sure. So, um to start off we both work on not just grizzly bears we work on both species of bears that live in Montana black bears and grizzly bears and both species of bears have the potential to be safety issues for humans and have the potential to cause damage Um, but where the shift in trend and the focus is on grizzly bears is just due to the fact that we now have more grizzly bears than we have in probably the last I don't know 70 to 100 years so, European settlers moved in, uh, lots of expansion, lots of people. So, the grizzly bears in specific were fairly well hunted almost to extinction in, in the lower 48 states. The grizzly bears still do very well in Canada and Alaska, and grizzly bears, brown bears, and kodiak bears are all the same species. But, in the lower 48 states, we put grizzly bears on the endangered species list in 1976. And when we did that, we designated six recovery zones. And that's part of kind of how we do endangered species or some of them. Um, Sometimes depending on whether it's an animal or a plant or a habitat, they're given different management plans. But as part of that management plan, six recovery zones, four of those recovery zones fall in Montana. And those four recovery zones in Montana are... The GYE, which is the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, the NCDE, which is the Northern Continental Divide Ecosystem, the Cabinet Yak, which is in Northwest Montana, and the Bitterroot Ecosystem. And the whole point of getting them on the list is to bring their numbers back up to make them no longer at a high risk of being extinct. And so we have more bears, that was kind of the goal. And getting more bears meant managing better for population, managing better for habitat and food sources. And so we're getting to the point now where we've reached some recovery criteria in two of our four Montana recovery zones, the GYE and the NCDE. And the baseline kind of minimum recovery criteria that we met for them is population numbers. So we estimate we have about 700-plus grizzly bears in the GYE area, uh, 1,000-plus bears in the NCDE area, 50 to 60 or so bears in the Cabinet Yaks, and no confirmed bears living in the Bitterroot. But the interesting thing about the Bitterroot ecosystem is the original plan was to potentially move some bears into the Bitterroot because we were concerned that bears would never make it there on their own. Although recent developments in 2018 with bears, a bear being found very close to the Bitterroot National Forest shows that there's a very strong potential that they will just move there on their own. And so basically with more bears just means that they are moving around more. We're encountering them more. We also have a greatly expanding population of people living in Montana. And so we're having more encounters. Bears are kind of roaming out, going back to where they inherently lived historically which was on the prairie in the plains bears are very adaptable especially grizzly bears they will actually live anywhere there's food source so um, a lot of people are very shocked to say to hear that grizzly bears used to live all the way as far south as the mexican border you know they lived in the midwest they don't need to be in the mountains they don't need the forest they are very content to live out in the open so really all that just means is We're having more encounters. They're figuring out how to live in a world with a lot more people, and we're figuring out how to live in a world where 10 or 15 years ago, we didn't have to quite be as concerned about running into them as we do today.
1: Yeah. So just for people that aren't from Montana or or don't kind of know the geography of where you're talking about, basically where you're talking about is that western part of Montana um, along the Rocky Mountain Front area correct
2: correct yep so if you're not from montana or not familiar montana um, about a third to maybe a half of it in the western half is the mountainous part of montana and then after you get into the eastern half of montana it's pretty grassland prairie type ecosystem and so most of our recovery zones were based where our mountains and where our public national forest lands are
1: and can one of you Just real briefly explain why they're focused in the mountains, why we're not seeing them out in... Why aren't they across all of Montana? Why are they so focused right in the mountains?
2: Um, Because when we designated those recovery zones, we designated those recovery zones based on public land access. So public land is Forest Service, is BLM, is state land. But large tracts of non-private land are primarily held with the u.s forest service in montana and those are primarily in the mountains that's primarily where our forests in montana are now there are of course forest service lands especially in the eastern u.s that aren't necessarily mountainous that are still forested but in order to give them the best chance of having the least conflicts and the least encounters and the smallest amount of motor vehicle road density The most minimal chance for agricultural um, conflicts, those recovery zones started in those chunks of large public forested lands that aren't, that don't have a lot of private owner land in holdings. And that's what gave them the best chance to start there. Now, of course, eventually... There's only so much space there, and eventually they don't, they don't understand this is the border between Forest Service and city or county or my land and Forest Service. And so they just move and roam, and as young bears get kicked out from mom, they go look for new territories where they're at least likely to be in conflict with other bears, and that tends to be out of the forest.
1: Gotcha grizzlies have been in the news a lot recently for a bunch of different reasons can one of you talk to me about what's going on with delisting it seems like there was some controversy over delisting and yeah what's going on with all that help help people understand that whole situation
0: yeah this is danielle i can and shed a little light on that so the endangered species act was originally established in order to save species from going extinct so whether species were listed as threatened or endangered depends on how close they were to extinction. So extinction or uh, an endangered species is very close to extinction. A threatened species is close to being endangered. Grizzly were, grizzlies were listed as threatened in 1975, and then, um, the, like Sarah said, the, the work was done, began to improve their habitat and their population. And so when the cri- recovery criteria was met in first in... I believe two thousand seven, uh, we we proposed, or we, I say we, as in the agencies that we represent, um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed the delisting of the grizzly bear. Um, that went that went to court, and um, one of the main concerns, it wasn't the only, but one of the main concerns there was to, to address the issue related to grizzly bears' reliance on white bark pine and climate change, and how that might affect their future. So the researchers went out in the field again. Studied that topic and came back saying um, grizzly bears are more flexible in their food sources than we originally thought. Mm. Um, it you know not every bear in the Greater Yellowstone relies on white bark pine. Many of them do, but um, we can still safely say um, that we can delist the grizzly bear. We've taken we've taken into account that that concern. Um, so so it was, it was proposed again um, 2017, and then they were delisted and then for for a short while as you guys remember f- you might have heard about last year um there were there were when when bears go off the endangered species list the management returns to the state so the states of Montana Idaho and Wyoming um began to consider how they were going to manage um grizzly bears as a population that was under their control and they they began to prepare for that and then um the the decision to delist was brought back to court again and a decision was made by by the judge to put them back on the endangered species list again so that's where we're at right now and there's some things that the judge wanted uh, the US Fish and Wildlife Service to consider before they could be delisted so that's a real quick summary of of what's going on right now they're currently still listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act at this point
1: okay and that was with the Wyoming populations, correct? I'm
0: sorry, that's the Greater Yellowstone population. Okay. So Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, Montana's portion of the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And I think I think what you highlighted there is really important because when I talk to people about this, a lot of times there's confusion about who is managing animals on the endangered species list, not just grizzlies. Uh, and that's that's important to remember that this is not state agencies. So your your local game wardens are not the ones that are doing this management. It's the federal agencies, correct? Yeah,
0: the federal agencies, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, oversees the management of grizzly bears or any species while they're on the endangered species list. Um, however, they work with their state partners in that management because there just aren't enough U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service personnel all over the united states to address every grizzly bear conflict so they work in concert with the u.s the fish um, fish wildlife and parks in montana and the other state agencies that that uh, are on the ground with the bears so ultimately like for example, if they have a case where a grizzly bear gets into trouble, they've repeatedly um, caused livestock damage, or they're a threat to, to human safety, um, that decision to remove the bear from the population has to go through ultimately through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service before that can be made. But they they work as partners with the, with the state at this point. If or when if or when they are removed from the endangered species list, then the the management will go directly to the state and. Something that I think listeners should know is that when, when animals are delisted from the Endangered Species Act, um, wildlife professionals from all agencies would consider that to be a success. Um, protection for an animal doesn't stop when they l- leave the list. It just changes hands. And they still have to maintain certain numbers of bears and keep the population healthy. So I think that's something that uh, that I'd like people to know is that protection doesn't end.
1: Yeah. And I, l- I like what you said because I've had similar thoughts to the point that when an animal comes off the endangered species list, that should be a, a celebration. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should be really excited about that. And that doesn't mean, I think I think in a lot of people's minds, when an animal comes off the endangered species list, especially an animal that can be hunted as part of the management plan, a lot of people think that all of a sudden we're just going to start blasting away <laughs> at the population and and decimate the population and then they're going to be endangered again and and that's not that's not the plan and that's not what's going to happen at all um and and so i think people get kind of hung up on that instead we should be focusing on this is incredible we ha- we we have an animal that was on the brink of extinction and now they're to the point where we're saying that their populations are at such a high level that they're viable and they're no longer in danger of going extinct if it were, I think it's interesting that if it were something like a, like a lizard or uh, a bird or something, we'd, we there would be a celebration. But I think because of the controversy around hunting certain species, mm-hmm. I think that's where th- some of the the controversy comes in. Do you is that is that the right line of thinking in my? Yeah, off that's there? part
2: of it, and I think um, it's important for people to understand that um, when we talk about delisting, so far it's only been that one group, the Yellowstone ecosystem bears so it's only been trying to delist the Yellowstone ecosystem bears the other three ecosystems in Montana the other two ecosystems in the lower 48 were still endangered species they're still on the list Um, and it is it's a great success what it does is when we are able to give them back to state management, it does a couple of things. It takes a lot of burden and financial strain off the federal government that we can then use to take those funds and focus on other species that are still on the endangered species list. What a lot of people don't realize is there are thousands of species on the endangered species list that don't get any um, staff or financial help to get them off the list. Mm -hmm. And so when we keep keeping certain animals or certain plants or certain habitats on the list – We're kind of taking some of those resources away from other ones that could also use those resources. Um, But then also it's part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's agreement and it's part of the state's agreement that they're monitored. The states are monitored. The state agencies are monitored um, for at least five years after they're delisted. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at any point can say we don't agree or we don't think that your state management is taking as good of care of these species as we'd like and we will take them back over so they're given kind of a probationary period to prove that they're doing what they need to do to keep those populations there as well so it's it's important to notice that just because they're delisted it doesn't automatically mean that we're just kicking them out in the world and hoping for the best there's all sorts of plans in place they're still being monitored they're still being watched and at any point if the federal government feels that a state agency isn't quite doing it correctly or if for some reason or another they need to be put back on they can be um but it's really important to think about all the other species that are on that list that could be using this funding and the staff and the time that are being devoted to certain other species so that we can work on getting more. Um, The Endangered Species Act is a great act, but if we can't show multiple success stories, then there are concerns that they're going to try to replace it with something different, and we may lose that powerful act to protect species.
1: And where does the funding from that come from? I'm sure someone will want to know that.
2: Uh, Federal funding obviously comes from a variety of different sources. A lot of it's tax-based, just like all federal sources. Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service you know gets grants from different sources as well a lot of grizzly bear endangered species funding comes from a multiple of organizations since it is such a kind of iconic species and people really really care about it there are lots of non-government non-profit organizations that donate to it um land management agencies which are often federal land management agencies but they are all state ones as well they chip in money. So it, it kind of comes from a pooled bunch of resources. But when they're a federal species and it's federally managed, it's usually federal dollars, um, which usually means it comes from federal taxes.
1: Gotcha. So what's on the horizon for bear conservation and, and grizzly conservation? What What's kind of the next steps now that we're – sounds like we're getting to the point where they're going to start coming off the ESA. And so what's, what's the next step? two three five six seven years look like
0: well i think so there's a number of pieces to that puzzle um i don't know what the timeline is really going to look like for delisting um again or when when that might happen for the greater yellowstone ecosystem or for the northern continental divide but one important piece of the puzzle i think is is the human component and for for the future of grizzly bears outside of their established um, primary conservation areas it's going to take uh, a lot of work and um and the will of the people living on that landscape to have bears in their backyards so I think that's a part of it that's something Sarah and I are working on a lot is getting out there and talking to people and letting them know what to expect in bear country and and what it means to live where there are grizzly bears and just getting information out so that people feel feel um, like they know what's going on so that's part of it um I think that's a big part of it. And then, yeah, I don't I don't know the timeline for delisting. Really. Yeah,
1: I, mean, I, like it. <laughs> I wish I wish someone knew, but well, no one so does. Well, so part of
2: it is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Service is reading through the judge's orders of this most recent. Um, the judge in 2018 put the Greater Yellowstone Bears back on the list primarily due to concerns of connectivity. So we have these different small island islands ish groups of bears and the concern is partially that we haven't yet been able to prove that bears from different populations are intermixing and interbreeding mm. and in specific for the yellowstone population since there are most farthest south population and they are no way connected to canada that we will get genetic inbreeding and mm. genetic isolation so there's a lot of concern of how do we get bears from like the Northern continental divide ecosystem to move down there and mix genetics so that we're not having population um, in holdings. So that's kind of part of the, the connectivity thing. And how do you address connectivity is kind of what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is working on. How do you say, well, this is our plan and this is how we're going to tell bears you must go down there and you must breed with those bears. And, <laughs> and, and you can't do that <laughs> uh, as much as and part of it is maybe we have had a bear to do that. But since we don't. Test every single bear. We don't collar every single bear. We can't, we have yet to prove that we have genetic intermixing. So, part of the getting the bears to move in between these two ecosystems is kind of creating a less constricted path for them to move from the northern continental divide ecosystem down or from the GYE up. Yeah. And that's primarily due to minimizing human conflict and creating. Uh, good travel paths for them so that's on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service side Uh, Montana Fish Wildlife and Parks is convening a statewide grizzly bear advisory council and what part of that council's job will be to do is to create a statewide grizzly bear management plan and that will say things like in the long run what are we looking at for how would we like to hunt what are we looking at for what bears will be removed where is our tolerance for where we'll allow bears to live and not live? Um, who will be in charge of this or that? So there are different pieces, as Danielle said, to, that play into this. the The federal side has their pieces, the state has theirs, and then there's this general. We all live here and work here, and the you know making sure that they're moving in amongst themselves. And then from there, it'll be a decision on the courts to whether the next time we decide to try for delisting. Will we be allowed to do it subpopulation by subpopulation, or will we have to do it all forty-eight states all in one? Um, And that's something that kind of goes hand in hand with what's going on with the gray wolf delisting as well.
1: Gotcha. Yeah,
0: the distinct population segment discussion is like is what one of the things that the judge brought up. Like Sarah said, so can you delist the GYE separate from every all the other in the lower forty-eight states? And then, I the, again, I'll come back to just the importance of people because, as Sarah was mentioning, that connectivity is something that we're really interested in going between these two main ecosystems that grizzly bears live in Montana and in northwest, I guess, in the northern Rockies in the United States. And most of that land between those areas is private. So... Um, in the core areas where the bears live now, it's mostly public land. But as you spread out, it becomes more private land. So it's going to take partnerships and collaboration. And I'm really, really interested to see what comes out of this, the governor's um, citizen uh, advisory committee, because this was a model they used when they were um, working on delisting the wolf, the gray wolf, and they used that same same method to find out what Montanans were interested in having for wolf management in the state. So uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see what they come up with.
1: Yeah, that's going to be really exciting. I was really thrilled when I saw the email come across that they were going to start forming that advisory council. And I was just very, it gave me a lot of hope seeing the progressive nature of what they're trying to do. That we're not just relying on what's been done in the past, but that we're going to take a model that's been successful with other endangered species and we're going to apply it to what's going on now it's that's pretty cool i'm i'm excited to see what happens with that over the next few years can one of you talk a little bit towards why we're seeing more conflict between bears and humans and i think we may have touched on this already but i want to be really specific about why we're seeing more conflict
0: well, I think the, the simple answer to that is that there are not only more bears on the landscape than there have been in a very long time, but there are also more humans in n- more places in that r- interface where bears are living. So we're, we just have a, a gr- much higher likelihood of people and bears interacting, and and along with interaction becomes comes a certain percentage of negative encounters. So um, a, a lot of our encounters in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem recently have been, um As far as reasons that bears have had to be removed Has to do with uh, livestock conflicts Mm. So bears getting into um, Cattle Especially cattle but sheep uh, Other agricultural endeavors And so that's been I guess one of the main conflicts As far as um folks on a smaller scale i think um uh, i guess we can talk prevention and one of the things you can do there's a lot of things you can do to reduce the the chances of bears getting in trouble and humans interacting with bears and those are all having to do with securing attractants there's like two main fronts i think of when i think of people and bears interacting one is um when the bears are coming attracted to something and one is when people um move and maybe surprise a bear on a trail or when they're out working on the landscape so there's a couple different things and they sometimes overlap so you can do preventative work at your own um, workplace or your home place that um, things that might attract bears and then you can also do preventative measures when you're out traveling in bear country where you're more likely to run into them um, when they're minding their own business or when you find them on a carcass or things like that. So those are the two, I guess those are the two main points that we talk about most in our area um, with livestock conflict and with um, human and bear conflict. Uh, hunting in particular is a big one in our area as well um, because people, again, more people and more bears out in the woods. So um, our group is all about safety and just prevention. So we're talking how to, how to get ahead of those, those conflicts and, and really number one is human safety to keep people safe. And then um a good uh, side benefit of that is that we have to, there are less bears that have to be killed when people follow those kinds of measures, so is that did that answer <laughs> Yes, question? absolutely okay. no, that
1: was great, and I liked what you said that when i mean people are very concerned about the well being of bears they want to see bears happy and healthy on the landscape, and to your point, people can do a lot if you if you're a a wildlife advocate, you can do a lot to make sure that you never lead to a bear needlessly being killed. And, and that's simple things like putting your garbage in your truck when you're out camping. I I'm always blown away when I drive through a campground and I see people with garbage, just like laid out everywhere. And yeah, maybe, maybe that one time that you go camping, you don't see a bear, but -hmm. if people consistently do things like that, you're, It's like putting out a buffet in a college frat house. Eventually, somebody's going to (laughs) come to the table. Like, it's just the way it works. Uh, So are we seeing more conflicts between humans and grizzlies or humans and black bears?
2: So typically, it's kind of biased because we don't often hear about conflicts with (laughs) humans and black bears because... They're just not reported. They're not kind of as scary. They tend to be um oh,
1: Sarah, I am terrified of both. <laughs> okay. I don't I don't want to <laughs> well, run into either one. They
2: both deserve <laughs> healthy respect. Healthy, yeah. I'm healthily <laughs> respectful
1: and go the other way when I see both. <laughs> you do. So
2: most of our encounters with black bears and, and there are lots of encounters, and it depends on what your definition of encounter is. Um more black bears get into break into people's homes, break into people's cars uh wait
1: time out (laughs) break into people's homes and cars yeah
2: we don't see it as much in montana um colorado arizona washington oregon california huge issues with black bears like when i lived in steamboat it was every other week that somebody'd be like yes there was a blackboard in my kitchen how are they getting into people's Uh, cars uh they've learned how to break open windows or if you don't lock your doors They Once they learn once how to pop open a door, which is not that hard, especially depending on the type of door handle. Uh And remember, they have all day, every day (laughs) to try. Um, So once they learn once that they can figure out how to open a door, then they'll keep opening doors. But they've also, a few of them have learned how to just, they're strong. So they've just learned that they can smash a window. And if you've left your leftover McDonald's bag in there or you didn't take out your groceries or whatever, you left your dog food bag in overnight they didn't want to carry in Um, we do they get in there and then that's a food reward so then the next time they are like this is great and all of the food that we have as humans we call them anthropogenic food sources so non-natural bare food sources are much higher in calories protein fats so they're getting a much higher nutritional reward for a much easier way of doing so so opening a window for them bashing open a window so they can get a whole bag of dog food is like three days of berry picking for them they love it um so we have a lot more issues with black bears doing these things but we don't hear about them as much because people have become maybe a little bit too tolerant to that behavior Mm. and they chalk it up to well it's never caused me any issues they've never they always run away when I come out. So I don't worry about them. Um, they're actually starting to see evidence in Washington where the bears have stopped hibernating because they're getting so much anthropogenic food, so much human food that the bears physiological state says we don't need to hibernate anymore.
1: There's we plenty of food we <laughs> all year
2: round. Yep, <laughs> yeah. There's garbage cans all year round. And so we're, it's kind of messing up what is natural and historic. So that's kind of black bear encounters. We just don't, Publicize them people aren't as worried about them It's a common thing that we hear Every year we have this black bear it comes into Our apple tree it tears it apart eats apples It's always 20 feet from me it never bothers Us we never worry about it now that Would be a whole different story if it Was a grizzly bear just because Their chance for a grizzly bear To defend its space or food is much Higher than that of a black bear and While black bears can cause you A lot of physical damage um, Grizzly bears have Just a little bit longer claws Mm. Can be a little bit bigger. They can cause um, more damage quicker. But we do actually tend to see. More predatory black bears. Which a predatory bear. Tends to be a bear that actively seeks out a human. Or human food sources. As food. Where most of our encounters with grizzly bears. Tend to be defensive. Which just means the grizzly bear. Is just either surprised. Or it's trying to defend its space, Food or cubs. And in no way is it a malicious i would like you to be dead so that i can eat on you type of attack um so it just really depends on what you call an encounter and why socially we're so much more tolerant of naughty black bears yeah and i i would encourage people to consider that that we have a role in like
0: protecting bears bears can't control the fact that they want human food like they their curiosity is what has made them a very successful species. They have to investigate everything around them in their environment, including human smells and foods, that whether they recognize them or not. And to say that Uh, to assume that black bears getting into garbage is just kind of what people say, oh, that just happens around here or that's normal. They've been doing that my whole lifetime. That's kind of to say that that they're disposable because um, eventually a food-habituated bear is is going to get in trouble and have to be removed. So it's just a matter of time. So if you care about, you know, the wildlife in your community, including black bears um, and maybe someday grizzlies, depending on where you live, grizzlies now, um, it's important to, to take responsibility and keep. Those areas clean because they're not disposable. So
1: yeah, and your point that a bear is just doing what a bear does is really that's really important to remember. Bears are not they're not thinking. Oh, I really want to mess up this person's day, so I'm going to go after them and, and jack them up when they're out hiking around. Like that's not that's not what they think. They think I'm scared. I'm hungry. Those are those are the things that they're thinking and. And we have a responsibility to make sure that we're acting in a way that doesn't elicit an unnecessary response from them. So to your points that we need to be taking care of our, our environment better. I I think that that is, that's the point with this whole thing is um, as far as mitigating that conflict is it's, it's up to us. So what are some real basic things that people can do to make sure that they mitigate those conflicts?
0: Do you want to discuss conflicts in the home or home areas, or do you want to talk? Uh, Why don't the you encounters? do outdoor
1: recreation stuff? Yeah, and I'll touch homeowner. That sounds. Animals. I like yeah, it. Yeah, that
0: sounds perfect. Good. Okay, so Look I'll, at start, this teamwork. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll
2: start. Yeah, uh, I'll start. In
0: my area, it seems that the focus tends to be it's on both. We have agricultural conflicts and we have um, human bear conflicts in the in the woods. But and your I, areas and the Yellowstone my areas, in, yeah, the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, especially so the Montana portion of that. And so I'll talk. I'll speak a little bit to our our kind our more common conflicts with people and bears and so um, as far as dealing with bear encounters there's a lot you can do for prevention Um, so so bears are just out in the woods or maybe not in the woods but places they can be anywhere they can be in in town as we've seen like in Bozeman school the last few years (laughs) uh, inside the school. (laughs) So you could, really bears can be anywhere, but um, some things you can do to prevent encounters with them are to just, first of all, be aware of your surroundings. So be looking at um, what sign you're seeing on the trail. Don't have headphones in like, just be listening to what's around you. I also think this just leads to a better experience when you're outside is to to be aware. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you're being aware of, of your surroundings and that'll give you a huge advantage. Um, and by the way, I think, um, the hunting community has this, a really good handle on this because it's part of the inherent, um, nature of hunting is just being aware of your surroundings. So that's an advantage to so be aware, uh, make a lot of noise. So that's something you can do most of the time, obviously not for our hunters, um, when they're actively pursuing game but we'll, we can talk about that later so being noisy is huge and I would say like your human voice is the best noise you can make um, some people carry bear bells but it's often my experience has been it's not very loud and you really want to be loud enough that they can hear you from a distance over natural sounds like the wind blowing or a creek flowing nearby so being loud and being smart about when you're making noise. If you have a good sight line, you can see a long ways ahead of you big open meadow, a ridge line, you're probably not going to surprise a bear as much on that open country as you would in a transition zone into a forest or when you're in a thicker area where sight lines are poor or Uh, Another thing I'm always considering is if I'm walking into the wind, a bear ahead of me isn't going to smell me very, very likely. And their sense of smell is their best sense. So that's another thing to be considering. So making noise. I yell out, hey, bear. I clap my hands. Anything that identifies you as human is going to be the most effective way to make noise. Then we always say to travel in groups whenever possible The statistics coming out of Yellowstone Park, they've taken really good notes on who gets hurt by bears and how. And so um, 91% of people who've been hurt by bears in Yellowstone Park uh, were in groups of one or two. And only nine percent were in groups of three or more, so bears see groups of people as intimidating and they're less likely to make contact with you um, you 're also less likely to surprise them because groups of three are lou- louder than groups or by the people by themselves, yeah. so, so and they 're more likely to
2: smell you ahead of time too, which is yeah, a big a thing point. that a lot of people don 't recognize is that is often how they recognize we're around before we even see them as they smell us. But they also have to first figure out what we are. And a lot of bears Mm -hmm. out there don't know what humans are. More in the parks do because they're encountering them. But as we're expanding into these new regions, a lot of these bears have never... Seen a human before, so they don't yeah. know yet what we are. Where so this is why human voice, as she's saying, is so important. A human voice equates to a human. It is not the same sound that any other creature makes. Yeah. So once they eventually learn what a human sees and or what a human smells like and what a human sounds like, they can yeah. much more equate to what do I do when I encounter this specific species.
0: So when they hear a person, I mean, they take note of people. Like, um it would be, I guess, a little naive to think that bears inherently as a species have never like people have been living with bears for a lot of their evolutionary history so they whether or not they've seen one before they might be curious the first time they meet a person but they've they they know that's something to pay attention to when they hear a human voice and it's a relevant sound so the other that's a really good point about that with human noises and um It has to be a relevant noise like the bear bell if a bear's never heard a bell before what does it mean to them Mm -hmm. it makes me think of like how you know you have a herd of elk in a high meadow and like an airplane flies overhead they hear it but what does it really mean to them it never has meant anything in the past and it doesn't equate to something they need to be concerned about so again human voice um and then we said groups. Oh, yeah, and groups, smell people can be easier to smell in a large group. That's what So a little, just a quick thing on, on bear's sense of smell. Um, so if you think about the sense of smell that a dog has, um, it's conservatively 100 times more powerful than a person's sense of smell. And some people say it's a lot more than that, but I'm just, usually we use that as a baseline 100 times. And then a bear's sense of smell is at least seven times more powerful than a domestic dog. So they see the world with their noses and they often trust their noses more than their eyes even though their vision is is not any poorer than a human's vision so so they have just like these amazing senses. So we talked uh being alert, making noise, being in groups um and one thing we always say to carry bear spray. That's a preventative thing to to think about ahead of time. Um you know, we leave no trace principles or something that this fits really well into. So planning, planning ahead and preparing to have your bear spray in case you encounter a bear and knowing how to use it. That's something Sarah and I teach a lot of people is about um, how to use their bear spray. And then the last thing is that if you, if you have control over when you're going to be traveling in bear country, you want to avoid, the early morning and the late evening, because bears are most active at those times. Now, I know again, th- those don't all work for for our subset of of folks out there that are hunting. Um, but there's there's other things you can do in those particular situations. So, so those are some preventative measures for the person out walking around in the woods or places they might encounter a bear.
1: And do you have any thoughts on the whole debate of gun versus bear spray?
0: Absolutely. So. So we are very strong proponents of bear spray because um, research has shown multiple studies that bear spray is the most effective tool to stop a bear attack or deter a b- to deter a bear from coming closer to you. So by far, um, that is the most successful tool, and it has a lot of advantages. That's not to say that firearms can't work to stop a bear attack. They have many times, but uh, the, the best tool to have is bear spray. So if you already carry carry a bear spray too and then you have more tools in the toolbox um but but we're just we're big proponents of bear spray the research there was a study um 2008 that we always cite um herrero et al that was talking about the effectiveness of bear spray when used on bears and in those cases which included um brown bears which are the same as grizzly bears grizzly bears brown bears um black bears and polar bears 92 percent of the time when bear spray was used it changed the bear's behavior and in those same cases 98 percent of the time the person wasn't hurt by the bear so it's a really strong statistics
2: and we use all this stuff um we call it a tool so bear spray is a tool a firearm's a tool i really emphasize that this knowledge and this awareness is a tool so you're adding all of these things in and Bear spray is a more effective tool if you know how to use it correctly and understand why and how it works, just like how you understand how a fa- firearm works. Where bear spray has advantages over firearms is, and in a couple ways it can be easier to get out if you've practiced that. Um, but what really has come to light, and especially in the last couple of years, a lot of our encounters have been very, very close. Mm. And so even our most recent encounter this weekend – Um, Our first encounter of 2019 that's been reported, the young man was able to bear spray the bear over his head as the bear was already on him. So no accuracy needed. And I'm not sure that that's something that you'd be able to do with a firearm. And I strongly encourage people to think about how they carry a rifle or a shotgun when they're hunting. Um, A lot of people carry them over the shoulder or in... A sling. And a sling or in the thing in their pack. That oh, a scabbard? A scabbard. Yeah. <laughs> um, where it would take you a f- quite a few seconds to get it out of there. Hopefully, you don't walk around the woods with your safety off and one in the chamber. Although I know a few people that do. But as a strong ethical hunter, I don't encourage that for the safety of others. Yeah. And so just for speed, rifles and shotguns often aren't there. Um, but you don't need to be accurate with bear spray. And you don't need to worry about the damage that you might cause to another person if you need to bear spray the bear on another person. Right. Yeah, um, That's
0: happened a few times in the last few years where p- hunting partners had to spray their other person with the bear on
2: them. Multiple so times. And multiple times yeah, it's been people it's real concern. where the bear's already been on them, over the behind them, and they just had to spray it over their head. Your friend yep. is going to be coughing when they get bear spray on them, but they will survive.
1: Well, yeah. Amber Kornack... Um, that's what she did is she sprayed over her shoulder into the bear's face
2: and that's just what happened this last weekend with a shed hunter who um, was out shed hunting and was out by himself and just startled a bear um, but was able to do it so you know we are and then the other thing to take into consideration with firearms is the potential that if you're out with other people you might hurt them with a firearm and trying to defend them Right. Um, and also just remembering that If you wound the bear and then a uh, animal management person has to go out there and take care of it, you're putting that game warden or animal management person also in jeopardy because they are now dealing with a wounded bear who can't move correctly, is hurt, is going to react in a less predictable manner. Yeah. And they also get holed up in areas where they can't move. So then if you don't tell anybody, you don't know if you wounded them or not. And then somebody else comes hiking along the trail, but now there's a wounded bear that's just hurt sitting there, doesn't know what to do. Um, so just think about all those aspects of it when you think about is this the right tool for this situation and am i using it in the most effective manner
1: yeah and i'll just add into everything you said i 100 percent agree with everything you two both shared and it's part of my mindset for how i protect myself in bear country another thing for people to think about is we don't we don't rise to our, our highest potential when we're put in stressful situations. We, we fall to the lowest common denominator of the things that we've practiced. And so what I would say to someone, if they're considering this, and and I don't want to steer people one way or the other, but I'll just walk you through what I did. I thought about how often do I practice with a handgun in a highly stressful situation where my life is on the line.
2: And you were law enforcement. So you of all people have a very good idea of what accuracy under a stressful situation can be like
1: yeah and and that's the thing is even in a training situation if you just put if you just turn on a stopwatch with someone you can watch someone who th- wh- who you would say is a pretty good shot you can watch their accuracy completely fall apart just by simply turning a stopwatch on and mm-hmm. saying you know you need to put this many <laughs> m- this many rounds in this target in 10 seconds Do that with yourself and see how accurate you are. You know, and I'm not saying don't carry a firearm in bear country. I I frequently carry both, but I always have bear spray with me because I know that no matter what happens, it is a simple point and pull the trigger. I don't have to worry about, you know, putting a shot in a kill zone. I don't have to worry about hurting somebody. It's just something to think about. You know, think about: Are you, do you practice enough, and are you good enough under pressure that you could effectively use that firearm? Maybe you are. I don't know, but I think most people don't have that honest conversation with themselves. And I mean, <laughs> I know this is kind of this is kind of a weird way to think about it, but when I'm out bow hunting or even rifle hunting, the last thing I want is more weight. And so that's another thing for me with the bear spray is it it is quite lighter. So yeah. that's something else to think about too. That is
2: something for me. But I always I say two tools is better than one tool. Yep. A backup is great. And if you have a persistent bear, which there are predatory bears, that bear spray is often less effective on them because their motive their motivation is different in a predatory circumstance. And their their physiological, their breathing, their heart rate, and their exposure is all different. And so it's I equate bear spray to a seatbelt often. Um does a seatbelt 100% guarantee that you are not going to get in an accident and then not get hurt? No. But what a seatbelt does is greatly reduces the chance that you're going to have mortality and reduces how hurt you are going to get it. So you use multiple tools when you're driving. You use safe driving and defensive driving, you have a seatbelt, we now have airbags. So these are all things that play into it. But nobody ever says that a seatbelt is going to say you're going to walk out of every car accident completely unharmed. Mm -hmm. But it definitely reduces the amount of harm that you receive. But you want to use all things at your exposure, but just understand all of them. Understand how your car works, understand how to drive in slick roads, all these things. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's a mental
2: shift too, being in bear
0: country. I want to add that in for folks that are if they're new to bear country, if they're living in this area. You have to change how you um, how you just act in the woods, and you have to be more thoughtful and alert most more of the time, which can be different than if you're used to l- like walking around a place with no large predators or no no real threats to um, to your life beyond just the natural environment. So so it's a mental um, shift. It's like cultural thing, and then um, that practice. I want to emphasize that too because I can't enough emphasize that practicing in your in your head and in person, like using your bear spray. Uh, when I'm on the trail I pull out my bear spray from my holster frequently just as like a practice when I'm passing time I see how quickly I can get to it how quickly it comes out of the holster and then I visualize different scenarios I think well if I saw a bear this area looks really sketchy maybe this would be harder to see a bear coming ahead of me if I had seen a bear and it came out right here on the trail 10 feet ahead how would I react and then I imagine it and you know visualization is something that a lot of people who are trying to get good at um, different like sports or whatever you're doing that you're trying to excel at. If you can visualize yourself doing it successfully, you'll be better at it when you do it. So that's something I always talk about with bear spray because I, I think where the mind has been, the body will follow. Mm. If you've done it before, um, at least in your head, you'll be more prepared. So practice that movement and practice the co- the calm, um, behavior. Yeah. Being calm in that situation. So. Yeah. We're on a great step yeah.
2: that people are carrying more Bear spray, but just carrying it, having never used it, never taking it out of the holster. Um, only so effective. I've
0: recently started testing like my friends and family on hikes like okay there's a bear <laughs> how quickly can you get your bear spray and it is so disappointing <laughs> so I hope it makes people think about it a little bit more because and you know it's not just bears like bear yeah. spray works on mountain lions it works on moose which I have found to be a lot more unpredictable than they bears in <laughs> my experience. And
2: so. they work on wolves which I don't wolves don't typically bother humans yeah. but if you like to h- hike with your dog friends um, and you want to protect them, that's a very helpful way, so it's just a yeah. a handy thing to have in addition to all the other tools in your kit.
1: Well, I'll just throw it out there too. It works on people, and that's yeah, that's one thing we forget yeah. a lot of people that that hike alone don't ever think about the fact that as sad as this is, they need to be aware that there could be a bad person out there on the trails with them as well and I don't know about anybody else, but i I really don't want to have to shoot somebody as <laughs> as as bad. As that sounds to think about, like I've thought about that. Would I rather bear spray them or would I rather shoot them? If the only, you know, option that I have to protect myself against an animal or a person is a gun, that's the only option I have. But if I have bear spray and, you know, you get... I mean, I've, I've got into confrontations with people out hunting where there was a miscommunication and the person thought I was either trespassing or they thought that I was... uh going in on the elk that they were after or or whatever and if it gets confrontational much better to pull the bear spray and then sort it out later than any other option so bear spray is good for a lot of different things where's the best place to keep your bear spray is it in your backpack Uh, because i see a lot of people do that so i'm just curious like is that a good place to keep it
0: so no uh, you need to keep (laughs) your bear spray accessible so (laughs) Um, there are a lot of different ways people carry bear spray, but, but in your backpack is not should not be an option. I liken that to like riding your bicycle with your helmet in your backpack; like you're not gonna have it out in time, and you won't with your bear <laughs> spray either. So, um, carry it. I, I mean, I most often carry it on my right hip in a holster. Um, but I, one of my new favorite ways to carry it now is I have a binocular harness. Um, mm. and I like there's a a system that you can attach a bear spray holster on the bottom of your back of your, um, binocular harness. And so it's really accessible. And when I'm hunting, I like that because my rifle like would hit where my bear spray was always holstered. And that's not a good situation because you'll knock your safety off. So. Nope.
1: That's a horrible situation. (laughs) Don't (laughs) do that. I, I need to record a podcast on this and this is probably the second or third podcast where this has come up, but yeah, I, I, bear sprayed myself this last year Oh man! so
0: on that <laughs> note you should carry soap with you in your backpack because yeah. yeah. i've also had that experience and i can't tell you how much i wish i'd had soap to break up the oils because bear spray is an oil-based chemical like capsaicin and, and yeah you need you need soap
1: <laughs> yeah and that actually brings up something else that i thought about and talked to some folks afterwards if you're if you're serious um about you know protecting yourself out in the in the backwoods you probably want to consider as has been said, either having both bear spray and a firearm or two canisters of bear spray. Cause that was one of the things that Amber on her podcast talked about Was she emptied her bear spray, which was the right thing to do, mm-hmm. but then she emptied her bear spray. And Had what do you do at that point on the way out? Yeah. yeah. So that's something else to think about. And just from a weight perspective, those bear spray canisters, they don't weigh that much. So I would honestly rather carry two of those than that and something else. So Well, and you can
2: carry the second one in your pack. But yep. this also goes important to – we're talking a lot about hiking and hunting on foot. But um, if you horseback ride, carry it on your person – you know, it's hard because it's a little bit awkward in a saddle, but they make some nice new holsters that work across the chest or in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't carry it on your saddle bag or on your horn in case you get thrown in case you're off your animal. Um, if you're riding a mountain bike, don't keep it on your bike, keep mm-hmm. it on your person. If you're, you know, so all, if you are out checking pipe, if you're, Um, this goes a lot with our agricultural community they're often on a four-wheeler going from here to there to check things and their bear spray or firearm is on their four-wheeler or utv or in their truck um i have what i call my three second rule so if you can't get it out and deployed in three seconds then you need to keep it somewhere closer and more accessible so if you're thinking on my four-wheeler is fine but if you're 10 feet from it then you can't get to that kind of three second thing. So all of that applies to everything you do, not just just hunting and hiking and being on your feet. All of the things you do it really should be on you. Um, And the great thing is we, you know, all sorts of different holsters have been developed recently with a whole lot of different varieties. So you can keep it on your pack, on your hip, different ones have changed. I am now to the point where I like one for when I hunt so that my rifle can't kick the safety off mm-hmm. um, so that it has less strap that goes over the safety. A different one for um, a different activity in case it doesn't quite fit with the activity I'm in. So if there is, if you're like, it's bulky and it doesn't work with this one, shop around. There's a lot of choices now for how to carry it in a different way. And then yeah, carry a second one um, in your pack Carry a second one in your... Have it in your outfitting camp. Have it in your cabin if you're out. You know, have a second one in the toolbox of your truck. Um, and use if you in a group, more than one person should yes, be carrying it. and absolutely it. more than one person should be carrying it in a group. Yeah. Did you want to touch on stuff around homes and landowners?
1: I, I do, but I just want to, real quick, don't leave it in your truck when there's extremes in temperature. Yes. Because that will either... <laughs> <laughs> make it deploy or it will degrade the integrity of the canister so that was just yeah. S- yep so so Actually, right. cold
2: to, store it yeah. somewhere if you are storing it don't store it anywhere that is exposed to lots of temperature fluctuations so if you keep it in your garage try to have it in a garage that is uh stays at a relatively even temperature uh, it will it does have a temperature level it says don't keep it somewhere below freezing and it does the gas is in it it's a compressed gas can so if it's heated too much that gas will expand and the more you let it heat and thaw and freeze the more that the gases inside degrade Um, but it is important to note don't leave it in your car or in the cab of your truck all summer long Um, there are special carrying canisters that you can buy there foam-filled plastic tubes you can build your own If nothing else keep it in the toolbox keep it in a tote keep it in the trunk don't let it roll around. A cooler. You can yep. put
0: it in a cooler. Anything backpack. that just keeps
2: it a little bit secure. Yeah. Um, because it is. It does have the potential to go off and it's kind of miserable.
0: <laughs> yeah. And on that note, too, just while we're talking about storing and carrying bear spray, d- it does have an expiration date. So mm. don't be using your bear spray after it's expired, at least not as your primary can that you're relying on, because um, once once that date goes by, the manufacturer can't guarantee that it's going to work properly. And no, it's not just them trying to get more money. They, there's um, the propellant that makes the bear spray effective coming out of the can can slowly leak out over time if the seal has been worn just from being hot and cold or just over being an older seal. So it could still feel like it's a full can, and it might still have some of the propellant in it, but it may not work effectively. There was just a story I think last summer of a gal in the Yukon Territory who was mountain biking and pulled her bear spray on a black bear. And it was a five-year-old expired can of bear spray. Five years expired and she went to spray it and it like foamed out of the can on her hands and like barely shot any spray out mm. so luckily the bear still left her alone but just you don't want to rely on an expired can and on that note you can recycle them um, at most of your local forest service offices or in my area in the Bozeman area you can recycle them at REI they all go down to Yellowstone Park they have a cool um, bear spray recycling like trailer that punctures them because the last thing your garbage person wants is to have like <laughs> your bear spray explode in the compressor <laughs> so
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sarah, why don't you touch on what people can do around the home? Because I think that's another thing that we're seeing more and more of as conflicts and people in apparently and around people's homes.
2: Sure. Yeah. So um, that is becoming a, a much more prominent issue, and and for a lot of people, myself included. You know, I grew up in the Helena area. We didn't ever worry about bears on our ranch. Um, We never worried about things around our home. We have, you know, an old truck that was our dump truck that we kept all of our garbage in. And, you know, once a month we made the trip into the dump to dump it and it wasn't a concern. And so around the home there are a lot of things you can do. And this goes back to that. We need to respect the fact that they're wild animals and they're curious and they're really just looking for food. And so we don't want to give them any encouragement have reasons to come near us we go out into the forest into the woods and we need to be smart about the fact that we're kind of in what we would consider their home Mm. but so around our homes we also need to give them no motivation to want to hang out and the more that they get comfortable around hanging around people's homes or just people in general the the less the respect they have for us and that leads to the potential for there to be a another encounter So whether it's your home, your cabin, your campground, but really start thinking about what are things that are potential attractants to bears. And these can be things that we often don't think about as being food for ourselves. So a lot of times, you know, when you're camping, we say, you know, toothpaste and deodorant, you need to lock that up. And people are like, well, why would a bear want to eat toothpaste? It doesn't know that it's not necessarily food, and it probably has some It Smells calorie. like a mint brownie. Yeah, that's what I was like. It smells like chocolate chip mint chocolate chip ice cream. Why would you <laughs> 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 um, so really, first, it's just an investiga- investigatory curiosity um, that's bringing them in. So that anything that smells needs to be put up, but it doesn't necessarily have to be lockboxed away. Just think about things that are easy. Most bears are going to go for easy opportunistic things so bird feeders is a huge issue and while the bear eating the bird feed isn't really hurting anything it might bash up your bird feeder a little bit what that is encouraging is encouraging bears to find food around human homes and it's encouraging them to become habituated and less respectful for of our space so large attractants that we have issues with are bird feeders garbage cans and that can be garbage cans that you put out for garbage day and if you live in an area where you get garbage pickup don't put your garbage can out until the morning of garbage day pickup don't put it out the night before put it the morning out, and then hopefully they pick it up as soon as possible and it's gone out of the way. And then during... Can I add something on that just yeah. real quick?
0: So just for folks who live in places where you have a mechanized garbage service, they do make bear-resistant containers that work with those trucks, so you can talk to those local your local waste disposal company about getting cans that would work with their system. So mm-hmm. just want to throw that in there.
2: Yeah, there's lots of options to that. And then during the week when you're storing garbage, uh, put it in your garage or a shed. And it's really interesting – because bears are a little bit opportunistic and sometimes a little bit lazy uh, just a shed with a clasp and a, any kind of minimal lock that's not you know bear clumsy openable is a good enough deterrent for most bears as long as they've never learned to get in there so garbage bird feeders um be really smart about if you decide to plant berry bushes or fruit trees around your homes or if you already have them it's a it's a common issue on the west side of the divide where they have a lot more water so there's a lot more fruit trees and bushes available either decide whether you want to keep those types of attractants around your home um you can either remove them altogether, just take out the bushes and the trees or you need to pick the fruit as soon as it arrives or put an electric fence around it um apiaries so beehives are becoming really popular on the eastern part of the front and they're awesome and I really strongly encourage everything we can do to help pollinators who are also landing themselves on the endangered species list, but recognize that they also are attractants. So before you decide to start up an apiary business, think about where you live, where you're going to put it, how are you going to keep bears away from it? Often electric fences are best one for that one as well. Then things like livestock. There are lots of things we could do to help protect against livestock feed During calving season, unfortunately, calves and lambs don't necessarily always make it through the birthing process or through the first few days of life, and so then we have to do something with those bodies. Either contact your local place for a carcass pickup removal, put them in an electric fence, um, talk to somebody. We have lots of ways that we can do things to help get those attractants out of there. And then just be smart about things like barbecues, dog food, cat food, Horse cookies Sweet feed mix Is something that people Don't mm. often think a lot about um, Even think about The elk leg That you clean Most of the meat off of But you gave to your dog In your backyard To chew on And then you forgot about it And now it's sitting Under a bunch of snow Especially this time of year Right now This is springtime The bears don't have A lot of food up high There's a lot of snow We're starting to see A lot of bears Come around In a lot of people's homes Because we got kind of Lazy too with the snow We didn't clean up Our properties We kind of forgot About the things that got buried under snow or we just haven't had time to really clean up our yards or homes or anything like that. So just think about all the smells and curiosity. And once a bear gets a food reward, that's when they are much more likely to repeat themselves. What most people don't realize is most bears travel along at night, move along and never bother anybody. Um, But that's the few that do and the ones that get food that keep coming back. And if you don't lock up your stuff, There's a chance they'll hit your home and then they'll hit your neighbor's home and then your next neighbor's home. And so it's really important to also have a good coordination with your neighbors and talk about, well, I'm really concerned that we haven't been able to take your garbage in. Do you need help? Is it because you're limited on driving? Can I help you take your stuff to the dump so that we can remove this attractant? So lots of things could be attractants, but um, there are many, many ways – To remove them and keep them out of sight and usually the easiest way is to just put them in a shed or a garage or a barn that has doors that can at least have some kind of clasp or lock Uh, it doesn't take much to kind of deter bears from getting into them
1: cool who's got a good bear story
0: I I can tell you my closest bear encounter so um, I used to lead a, a backcountry trail crew with high school students Yellowstone Youth Conservation Corps and we had been on a a hitch where we were coming back and so you're kind of tired after our working along two weeks and we're I thought for sure eight high schoolers and two adults we're, we're gonna make enough noise to let the bears know we're coming you and would think you would think <laughs> 10 people so this is unusual because that you don't usually have close encounters with that many people but we're walking uh we're walking along a trail and it's kind of a to set the scene it's like a burned from 1988 like lodge pole down trees but regrowth in there and and then all of, I was in front, and all of a sudden, like 10 feet, I'm not exaggerating, 10 feet in front of us, um, this grizzly pops up out of the dead oh. down trees. He slams his feet down, and he does this huffing noise, um, and he's just posturing real stiff-legged. Um, and I immediately, so I know more now than I did then. You immediately, so immediately pushed the my kids bear towards him. <laughs> 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 I, actually, I actually didn't, I got my bear spray out without even, I don't even remember grabbing it, like it was just in my hand. And we were yelling at it, and I'll tell you, um, I can, tell you what I did wrong here but um you don't need to yell at a bear that's already feeling threatened so that was you know it was just an instinct in that moment to yell at it but we yelled at it and and I thought to myself and I knew how to use bear spray I had it in my hand I thought I'm just gonna let this I don't know why I thought this I like let this bear calm down I think we just startled it and it'll go on its way I could have sprayed it like it was so close I could have easily sprayed it and I didn't and then sure enough it it calmed down and it started to walk back up the hill away from us and so th- me thinking I'm going to reduce exposure between the bear and the students I have I send eight students down the trail ahead of us and I stand there with my coworker, and we watch to make sure the bear leaves well this is a young grizzly bear I would say probably like a three and a half four year old bear not not like a big it was not a huge bear and it was not young enough to be with its mom so teenager turned around and looked at us and then just saw two people and then like slowly started to walk back towards <laughs> us really calmly and then we really started yelling at it never came back within range of bear spray again and then meandered off in a different direction away from all of our group but I, the lesson I learned there is like if when you're with it if you're in doubt just use your bear spray because i wish i had taught that bear that lesson of like you don't mess with people like um this humans are something to avoid on the trail i think it was just young and inexperienced and that's why we got the reaction we did but i like that story because it illustrates there are two main kinds of bear encounters there can be a a defensive encounter or a predatory encounter or which could be also be called like curious bears and that that experience began as a As a defensive bear This bear that we We threatened and scared Who was just feeding And then it turned into A curious bear So you react differently In those two different situations Like I said You don't need to be aggressive When the bear is Defending itself um, But you can use bear spray In any of those scenarios And if the bear is calm And curious You want to act aggressive You want to counter that by by showing it not to mess with you, um, because you don't want it to investigate further what you are or get closer to you. So um, that's a really short summary, and I can go into that behavior part if you want more. But that that was my experience. I wish I'd used the bear spray.
1: No, I think that's that's awesome. That's a good that's a good story, and it ended well. So yeah, everyone walked away a winner.
2: Yeah, it had a good story. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Have
1: you had any close calls, Sarah?
2: I haven't. Um, growing up in the more central Montana area, we really and I would say that. It's very common for most of my friends and family that live in the Helen area, uh, the Great Falls area, to not even have grizzly bears on our radar. Um, I've had some close encounters with black bears, and, you know, they did typical black bear behavior where they just spooked and ran off. But luckily I haven't. Animal behavior, though, it's it's really interesting. Each bear is kind of an individual, and each bear is gonna do a little bit of a different thing and so it's really important to kind of think about what they're displaying to you in their behavior and a lot of time it is reactionary and like danielle said you often don't want to yell at a scared or threatened bear but it does pay off to talk to them Mm because again we're trying to encourage them to learn that we're human and so if you talk to them in your human voice it sometimes helps them figure out you are human and then as she said you want to encourage them to learn to just leave humans alone so it's a added benefit to that as well
0: and I'll throw in because I like what you say about talking calmly when people say talk calmly to the bear that does identify you as human but I go that to me it's a step further of like if anyone who's ever been a, a first responder or anything like talking yourself through what you're going to do helps you um, follow through with it so if you say Hey everybody! There's bear like this bear. What we're gonna do is this, this, and this. It uh, keeps everybody calmer yeah. and like thinking about you're you're giving directions. So, well, all and even if good. the bear doesn't understand you, if you've ever yeah. been
2: around, you know I, I work with horses a lot, and I'm like, <laughs> it's okay, horse. We're gonna do this. You're all right. You're fine. They don't know, but it helps me feel better to right. tell them. And you know, like, all right, if you come any closer. I'm going to have to use my bear spray on you. <laughs> All right. Stop <laughs> that. Just work it out. Go away. And <laughs> yeah. it helps me more than I think it helps the bear. But <laughs> that's my good. way of like processing my fear is yeah. by saying it out loud. And yeah. uh, it kind of helps you slow yourself down so that you can respond in a, a smart manner.
1: Well, animals are incredibly intelligent as far as picking up nonverbal cues and your energy. And so I think me personally, when you do react the way you two are talking about the bear picks up on that and he doesn't sense, oh, this person is really amped up and they're really afraid or they're being aggressive. So I think you're right that being calm and talking calmly signals to the bear that, oh, this this thing is not scared of me i should probably consider what i'm about to do right now Mm -hmm. so
2: and you have to remember they have a physiological response to being startled as well so they get the same adrenaline push um they get the same heart rate breathing uh elevation and so their instinctual reaction is to potentially confront that threat that's what bears do to other bears So what they're often doing in that defensive state where they're kind of stomping and giving signals is not only are they trying to signal to you what they're feeling, I think in my mind that they're working through what they want to do next and working through that physiological response. And sometimes it takes them and their body a little bit time to come down from that elevation of startlement. And that's really important also to give them a chance to get out of the area and to give them a chance to calm down and process what's going on around them. Cause if you immediately just start either hazing them, or if you immediately just start going after them, um, they continue to go on that instinct versus kind of thought path. And of course this is my human anthropomorphizing of animals, but we see it a lot in horses and dogs. And so I, I feel like bears could probably do some of the same things.
1: Yeah. So my, my bear, I, I have never had a occasion to pull my bear spray or a gun on a bear, but I've seen bears in the, in the wild at fairly safe distances, but enough to where I'm like, Hmm, okay. It's time to be a little careful this morning. However, my bear story from this morning was I was listening to a podcast, uh, from the hunting collective with Ben O'Brien and he had Todd Orr on Mm -hmm. and Todd was retelling his bear attack story just at about the time I was walking out the door to go to the gym, which was about five thirty, and I'm really into the story and I'm just thinking, Oh my goodness, what would I do if that was me? And just at about that point one of the feral cats that live near my house ran right in front of me and I didn't I didn't yell. But <laughs> <You squeak? laughs> it scared the ever-living crap out of me <laughs> this morning. And I b- had that reaction, like, just cold sweat and <laughs> just, like, completely energy-drained, like, huge adrenaline dump at 5.30 this morning. <laughs> and, yeah, that was my bear encounter <laughs> story from this morning. Your cat bear. My cat bear, yeah. <laughs> well, the, th- the it was black, too. It was a black cat. So it's like, all these things... This, black object runs in front of me and Todd's talking about getting attacked by bears it was a uh, I'm sure it would (laughs) have been hilarious if somebody got it on video so Uh, so one question I ask a lot of my guests and I'll ask both of you and I'd love a response from both of you is what's one action every person listening to this podcast should take right now it doesn't necessarily have to be bear related but I guess it could be
2: um I guess I would say just start remembering that we all choose to live in montana and some of us have been here for years and this is a change of mindset for lots of things and this is a change of mindset all the time you know the new world of things are online and there's social media everything's a change and change is hard for everyone no matter what kind of change it is just recognize that having to accept that there are more bears and we have a greater chance of running into them. It doesn't mean that I'm saying you have to accept that they're going to be around and you have to accept them in your backyard. Just accept that this is new and this is a change and it's going to take everybody a little bit of time to kind of adapt to the change, but be open-minded and knowledgeable about it. Um, And just kind of start to think on the path that we are so lucky to live in Montana We get to see all sorts of wildlife Deer, elk, moose Mountain lions, bobcats Some of them are scarier than others Some of them intimidate us more than others But you kind of get all the benefits in With all some of the more scary things And really appreciate The great opportunity we have to live here But recognize we all know that this is new And it's a change And it's going to take some time Mine is uh, To be
0: present And I think that can work in so many aspects of life with uh, social media and everything that's always distracting us from the present moment. But also when you're in like in bear country, being present is really important to, to your safety and to just appreciating the, the place you're in. So be present. And then I, I do add, want to add one in for bears is that, I want everyone to be involved in their uh, wildlife management. So um, consider getting involved and in learning more about issues that concern your wildlife. If you're Montanans, th- this is your wildlife, and and um, and it's and these are your public lands. And so be involved in it. And then um, consider, if you're passionate about grizzly bears, consider being on the, the Citizen, Advi- Citizen Advisory Council. C- consider applying.
1: Cool. And where can people connect with you guys, the work you're doing? bear management in general in montana what are, is their facebook page or website they should go check out
0: yeah um we have a facebook page and instagram page uh, montana bear education working group and um i administer that and sarah and i work together so if you have a question for me or for her we can get you can get a hold of us that way that's really easy and um we have a phone number on our facebook page too you can call for you one of our offices you can also call
2: any of the Helena, Lewis & Clark, Custer Gallatin, or Beaverhead Deer Lodge National Forest offices, Mm -hmm. as well as most of the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Park offices, um, should all know how to get in touch with us, or any of the other bear-related workers. Um, They also all have Facebook pages as well. And so there are lots of great ways to get in touch with us, and you can call any one of them.
0: Yeah, and please do. like If you have questions following up on this, I know we didn't get to talk about everything, so I just want you guys to know if you have like anything that didn't seem clear or you want to follow up on, please um, check out our pages and get a hold. I will respond to your messages. Um, we want to get your questions answered.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I'll just follow that up by saying if you have a question, you can always contact me and I can pass it on to any of the guests, but particularly these two. They're a wealth of knowledge, and we're really lucky to have people like you come on the podcast it's it's awesome to be able to pick your brains and i i was just thinking about while you were talking that man we could have done so many tangents and deep dives because there's so much to talk about with this and i i love bears they're a fascinating species so i appreciate you two taking the time to come talk with me about something that i'm so passionate so thank you i appreciate having you both here this was a lot of fun
0: thanks for having us yeah thank you it was great
1: all right talk to you guys later bye Well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, go leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow Urban to Country on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and sign up for the Urban to Country newsletter on our website. In closing, I wanted to quote Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau said, All good things are wild and free. Please remember to do your part to make sure our wild places and our wild creatures are here for generations to come.